Let's read from Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80, and then we'll... Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the word that you give to us, the revelation that we have here of the work of redemption that you have worked through your people. And Father, we ask that you would come and give us insight and understanding and convict us, Father, of our sin and lead us, Lord, into the truth this morning as we ponder these words. Consider them. And Lord, we also pray for those who are suffering, and we pray for family members that we love close to us. Tony's um, son's mother-in-law and, and her condition, and pray for that family today. You would be merciful to them, care for them, help them, Lord. And Lord, we pray for John Dowdy's mother. And as John and Amber have been... Uh, caring for her and doing different things to um, encourage her. We pray, Lord, now that you would be with them and be with Ellie as she goes through this time. We ask, Father, that your mercy would be made known and your grace, Lord, would be seen. We ask, Lord, in all these things to be given in the name of Jesus and for his honor and glory. Amen. Well, our passage this morning course comes before the birth of Christ and we had a, a Sunday that we had a, 
uh, snowstorm, and so we had to cancel our worship services. So this should have been preached prior to Christmas. However, um, things didn't go uh, as we had planned. And so I said, well, we still need to visit this, this, this passage and, and learn from it. So we're going back a little bit in the Gospel of Luke to hear uh, the last part of chapter 1 about the birth of John. And th- this passage really is about the joyous occasion of the birth of a child. And, and every birth is a joyous occasion in a time of rejoicing. Again, that's, that's why you know, whenever, whenever there is a birth within our congregation, we like to make a special note of it and, and rejoice with the parents and the family of, of the child. Of course, most recently, you know, uh, the birth of Serenity Newman to Josh and Claudia. Uh, but there are, are certain births that because of some special circumstances, well, it, they, they just lead us to rejoice a little more, to give us maybe a greater sense of joy at the birth. Last Saturday, uh, my family and I were back in Iowa uh, for my extended Hograve family Christmas gathering. One of the highlights of this Christmas gathering for me personally is getting to hang out with uh, my cousins Tony and Tim, uh, sons of my dad's brother Gary, and I grew up uh, closest to these cousins uh, than, and than any really of my other cousins because they, they lived in the same community that I grew up in. And uh, although we, we did have a little bit of, a, of an age difference, you see Tony and Tim and their younger sister, Trisha were the youngest cousins on the whole grave side. So I referred to Tony and Tim as, as the runts of our family, uh, which, of course, they, they greatly appreciate. Um, and I, I, I like to tease them that I was the first cousin to hold them after they were born, uh, which I'm not really sure is true, but I do distinctly remember when they were born, especially uh, Tony. Uh, among my dad's siblings, my, my, my sisters and I sit atop the birth order. And then my Uncle Randy uh, had a, a, a girl and a boy, uh, but my Uncle Gary and Aunt Julie remained uh, childless, uh, even though they had, they had gotten married just before I was, I was born. And prior to, to Tony's birth, whenever we would be heading to a whole gray family gathering, I re- remember my, my mother saying to my dad something like, well, I hope Gary and Julie have an announcement for us today which I was always you know, confused about what kind of announcement my mom would be referring to, until one Easter gathering at my, my grandma Hograve's house when my Aunt Julie had my, my, my grandma open up a special Easter egg. And inside the egg were these you know, little white baby shoes, which of course everyone in the room you know, knew what that meant right away. And I remember much rejoicing at that family gathering. I remember my grandma and my mom and my aunts all shedding tears at that announcement. There was rejoicing over this announcement and, and then, of course, the eventual birth of my cousin Tony because of the struggles that this family, uh, that, that we, we, we as a family all knew that, that my aunt and uncle had in becoming pregnant. Uh, maybe you have had a similar experience in, in, in your family. Uh, there are definitely certain births that just lead us to rejoice a little more than others. And there, there was definitely a little more rejoicing going on for the surprising birth of John to Elizabeth and Zechariah here in our passage. That's definitely one of the main themes. 
We, we, we learned earlier in, in the chapter of, of Luke, Luke 1 that Zechariah and Elizabeth had not been able to have any children, and now they were quite old, or as the King James Version puts it in verse 7 of chapter 1, they were now well stricken in years. And so they and everyone else that they knew were definitely not expecting something like this to happen. And once Elizabeth found out that she was expecting, verse 24 of chapter 1 tells us that she kept herself hidden. So now in our passage, the time has come for Elizabeth to give birth. And her neighbors and relatives, many of whom probably were not aware that she was even expecting, well, they hear about the birth and they come to rejoice with her, it says. Probably with a little more joy than normal for this special circumstance here. And not only did they rejoice greatly at the birth of this child, but the child's birth and the way that his parents stubbornly wanted to name him John, as well as the sudden return of Zechariah's ability to speak, caused the neighbors and family to wonder and to fear. Something was definitely going on here with this child's birth. And, and in this time for us, when, when we have just spent a few weeks celebrating the birth of a very special child, we will go back and recognize that the birth of Christ in Bethlehem was not the only birth that was celebrated in the New Testament, and not even in the Gospel of Luke. Yet we celebrate the birth of this child as well, this child by the name of John. And we celebrate it for, for much the same reason that we celebrate the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem. So the main theme we, we're looking at this morning in this passage is praise and wonder surround the birth of John, for it was a clear sign that God would fulfill his promise of salvation for his people. Praise and wonder surrounded the birth of John, for it was a clear sign that God would fulfill his promise of salvation for his people. Now, this passage, of course, is focused on the birth of John and the, and the special significance of his birth, so our outline will also focus on the meaning of his birth. The first heading, the birth of John, was a clear sign that God was at work. Again, found in verses 57 through verse 66. Not only was the birth of John a cause for much rejoicing among his parents and their community, but it was also a cause for a bit of controversy we see here. That controversy takes up several verses in the middle of this paragraph. It seemed that Zechariah and Elizabeth's neighbors and family members were a little disappointed with the name that they gave to the baby. Now, you know, we probably shouldn't be surprised at this, for it seems like we run into controversy over names of children quite a bit in our own culture. You know, maybe there uh, were, were, were some in your family who were left, you know, to kind of wonder, what were you thinking when you named your child? Or maybe, you know, you yourself have, have, have questioned the name that someone you know has given to their son or daughter. You know, I know that when our youngest was born, uh, Betty, we, we, we surprised many of our family members with the name that we gave her. Even our own daughter was a little upset that we, we didn't follow the pattern that we had unintentionally set with our first three children by having them end their names with the, 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 the ER sound. But we, we must all respect the right that parents have to name their children however they want to. But with the case of John... His name wasn't given to him by his family's community, 
Otherwise, he would have been named Zechariah after his father. And his name wasn't even chosen for him by his parents. Even though they remained committed to naming him John when they were under pressure to name him something else, no, no, rather, God had chosen the name John for this child. Zechariah had been commanded by the angel Gabriel to name the boy John. And Zechariah showed his faith in God's word by making it clear that his name would be John by writing it on a tablet since he was unable at that time to speak. Now this tablet would have been uh, like a wooden uh, uh, tablet covered in wax and Zechariah would have taken a, a sharp pointed utensil and carved in that wax Ja'an in Hebrew on the tablet leaving no room for debate. His name is John. In the Bible, names are, are often pretty significant. There is a lot of meaning behind the names that people are given, especially when the name is given to them directly by God. In Genesis, God named Adam, which means man or human. Adam named the first woman Eve, which means mother of all living. Later on, God gave Abram a new name, Abraham, which means father of many nations, pointing to the reality that God's people and the Savior would come from Abraham's many descendants. And the first chapter of, of Luke's gospel focuses on two miraculous births, and with each birth, the parents were commanded by God to give them the name he had picked out. God told Joseph, Joseph and Mary to name their son Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, or the Lord saves. And Zechariah was commanded to, 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 to name his son John, which means Yahweh is merciful. And maybe you notice that, that, that God's mercy happens to be a, a significant theme here throughout this passage. It's found in verse 58, verse 72, and then in verse 78. We learn about God's mercy. If we also throw in the other two names in our story here, well, we, we might get a sense that the Lord really is up to something. For Zechariah's name means God remembers, which Zechariah will point out that he remembered his covenant in his prophetic song in the second half of our passage. And Elizabeth's name means God is faithful. He's faithful to keep his covenant to keep his promises to his people. So Zechariah and Elizabeth's neighbors and family members are left in wonder and amazement at all they experience here with the birth of John. First, you know, this older couple, which had previously been unable to have children, all of a sudden they have a son, which was remarkable in itself. And then second, they are insistent that the child be given a strange name, or at least strange to them, and both Elizabeth and, and Zechariah agreed upon it, even though Zechariah was, was, was both mute and deaf and couldn't have heard what Elizabeth had named him. And finally, once Zechariah wrote out the name that the Lord had given to his son, his ability to speak and hear suddenly returned to him. And his first words were of praising God and prophesying God's words regarding his son. Obviously, something was happening, and the people interpreted it as that God's hand was with this boy. And they asked the question, 
What then will this child be? What then will this child be? Which, of course, is a question that we all have for our children when they are born. But in the case of John, God has already told his father about his significance. God's already told him what he will be. And now in the the next half of the passage, Zechariah will share more of what God has revealed about what he is up to through this incredibly joyous birth. And he will end up answering that question for us, what then will this child be? So secondly, as we get into this prophetic section here of the passage, verse 67, we see that the birth of John ensured the coming of the promised Savior of God's people. Verses 67 through 75. Now like with Mary in verses 46 through 55 of chapter 1, Zechariah also breaks out into song following the birth of his son John. Uh, Zechariah's song is referred to as the Benedictus in the history of the church, which refers to the first word in the song there in verse 68. The Latin translation of blessed would be Benedictus. He blesses the Lord for what the birth of his son John represents. The song then is evenly divided into two parts. Uh, The first is really focused on the fulfilling of God's promises to Israel, which will be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah or the Christ. And all of the verbs in the first section, verses 68 through 75, are in the past tense. Notice that in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And we all know what, what visited means. The word redeemed, though, is a reference to slavery and how the Lord has delivered his people from slavery or paid the price to buy them out of slavery. Again, uh, both visited and redeemed are in the past tense, as if these are saving actions that the Lord has already accomplished. So either Zechariah is reflecting back on the Lord's visitation and deliverance of his people from their slavery in Egypt, or he is saying something more than that. And verse 69 then sheds a little more light on what he's talking about. Look there at verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now a horn in the Old Testament would be a reference to power and strength. The horn of a bull is is essentially the business end of the bull. So the image represents God's strong, powerful role in salvation. And again, the verb is in the past tense. But what what he is referring to is is the same message that we heard from the angel Gabriel in his message to Mary on what her child will be. If you want to just turn back maybe a page or two to Luke 1, 31 through 33, listen to what the angel Gabriel says to Mary about her son that will be born to her. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And now just head back to our passage here at the end of chapter one and listen to what Zechariah goes on to say about about this horn of salvation that God has raised up in the house of David. Look at verse 70. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his covenant, his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Zechariah is pointing us back to the covenant promises that the Lord made with his people. Again, particularly the covenant with Abraham, that through his descendants would come the man who would bless all the families of the earth. And then the covenant made with David, that the Savior King, whose kingdom would have no end, and who and, 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 and this, that this king would, would deliver his people from all of their enemies, well, this king would be from David's house or David's family line. So Zechariah is announcing that God basically has fulfilled his covenant promises to his people and that the reason why he is so sure that he has fulfilled them is because the birth of his son John is a clear sign of that. Remember, Zechariah had been deaf and mute since Gabriel appeared to him and announced God's plan for his son John. Zechariah did not respond to God's word with faith, but with unbelief at that time. That's why he was struck deaf and dumb for the duration of the pregnancy. For he has had a lot of time then to think over and to ponder God's word to him through the angel. And now, now his son John is here. Everything has happened just as the angel said it would, down to the birth of his son being the cause for many to rejoice. The suffering that the Lord's discipline upon Zechariah had caused has actually been used for his good. For it was used by God to build up his faith, to, to, to draw him closer to the Lord in dependence and trust. And now, the moment after he was given his ability to speak, Zechariah doesn't waste any of his words, but uses them to praise and bless the Lord and to proclaim the mystery of the gospel that is being revealed before him through the birth of his son John. So Zechariah looks back at what the, what the Old Testament prophets proclaimed to help him to understand what God was doing with his son's birth. And brothers and sisters, that is still a wise practice for the people of God to be following today. Our present and future must be understood in terms of what God has already said and done in the past in his word. We must live our lives, as, as Zechariah shows us here, in anticipation of what God has already accomplished in the past, in the sending of his son into the world in order to save his people from their sins. And in what he said he would do, that is, that the Lord Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. So now is the time for God's people to make disciples and prepare ourselves and others for his return. And that's just what verses 74 and 75 are pointing us to. It says that, that, that we, being delivered from the, the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God's purpose for our salvation is not just to give us eternal life. 
It's not just to save us from hell. It is to set us free so that we can serve God without fear. The salvation that he was bringing through through Christ was so that we can, we, we can do what we were created to do, to glorify God with lives of service. As Ephesians 2 verse 10 also makes clear, where it says, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So believing the gospel of our salvation frees us from our slavery to sin, our slavery to our selfishness, our slavery to our pride, our slavery to Satan in order to serve God faithfully. So is this a part of your understanding of the gospel? Does your life reflect this gospel reality here revealed in this passage that you have been saved in order to serve the Lord? Now that, that might be a good challenge for us to consider at the start of a new year. You know, how am I seeking to serve the Lord with the life, with the gifts, with the abilities, with the place that God has all given to me? How can I serve him? What can I do? And finally, the, the last section here, the birth of John was a clear sign of the tender mercy of God. This is verses 76 through verse 80. In the second part of, of, of Zechariah's song, he turns his attention towards his son, John. I mean, can you imagine how honored Zechariah must have felt as a father to prophesy these words regarding his own son? I mean, in these verses, Zechariah is answering the question posed by their friends in verse 66. What then will this child be? They, they had clearly recognized that the hand of the Lord was with this child. And now Zechariah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, proclaims the incredibly great role that his son will play in God's story of redemption, that he will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Note that uh, Zechariah doesn't even mention anything about baptism here. His son will become known as John the Baptist, which in our day might be a little confusing to us. You know, we might think, well, you know, which kind of Baptist was he? Was he a Southern Baptist? Was he a North American Baptist? Was he a Baptist General Conference? Or was he one of them Garb Baptists? I'm sure they all, they all claim him you know, to be one of their own. Uh, well, of course, that's, that's not at all what, what we mean when we refer to John as the Baptist. It would be more accurate to refer, him, to refer to him as the baptizer. But here, there is no mention of baptism or of John being the baptizer, but rather we are told that he is going to be much more of a forerunner for Christ. He will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He will prepare God's people for the coming of the Savior. Or more directly, as, as, as uh, it's put here, he will prepare God's people for salvation. Look back. 76 through 79 here. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
Later on in Luke chapter 7, Jesus will make the startling claim that among those born of women, none is greater than John. That is, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son would go on to become the greatest prophet, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah or Daniel. He would become greater than King David, greater than Joseph, greater than Jacob, greater than Abraham. Now, now why would Jesus say that about John? Because, you know, John was the only prophet, the only man in biblical history up until that time to directly point people to Jesus. In the Gospel of John, he would point to Jesus and exclaim, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John would, as it says in verse 77, give the knowledge of salvation to his people. That is, he would give them the knowledge of who their Savior is. He would point them to Jesus. So brothers and sisters, we can have a similar privilege as John had. For we too, we, we know who the Savior is. We know him. We can identify him. We can point people directly to him, to Jesus, the one and only Savior. Knowing him, having a personal relationship with Jesus is salvation. But, but let us note here also how salvation is described for us, which would also be very helpful for us to know if we're sharing the gospel with somebody. So, so what does the Bible mean here when it refers to salvation? We'll look at verse 77 again. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Salvation is not just you have eternal life. Salvation is, is, is not you know, just that, that, they, they, that you have you know, been made right with God. No one can have eternal life unless they have their sins forgiven. For no one can enter heaven or be in God's presence in their sin. And salvation is, is not just that you are made right, right with God because you know, the only way to be made right with God is to have your sins forgiven. Your sin is what separates you from God. Something must be done about your sins first before you will be able to have a relationship with the holy God. Our sins are not just the things that we know are really bad. They're, they're not just murder or adultery or stealing. You know, our sins, as the Bible teaches, are everything we do in opposition to God. Our hearts are sinful because our hearts desire the things that God has said are evil. Our wills are sinful because our will acts and thinks that we know better than God does. And so often that's how we live our lives. That we'd prefer to you know, not have God around telling us what is right and what is wrong. We We'd like to decide that for ourselves. You know, even those of us who may claim to follow God or who may claim to be Christians, when it comes down to it, we'd much rather not have God telling us what to do. Some of those things he tells us to do are just a little too hard for us to be doing. 
So in other words, we believe we're better off without him. We'd prefer to enjoy our sins over having a relationship with God. We definitely cannot have both. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, there can be no peace between you and God while there is peace between you and sin. And verses 78 and 79 then show us what condition we are in with our sins. We are in the darkness. We are in the shadow of death. We are unable to help ourselves in the darkness. We are unable to find our own way. When we are in the dark, we will always choose the wrong way to go. We will only make our own situation worse or fall into even greater trouble. We are lost. We are guilty. We are in darkness in our sins and we deserve to be there. And we have no one to blame but ourselves for being there. We are under God's terrifying wrath and will be judged for our sins. But as verse 78 shows us, because of the tender mercy of our God, he has made a way the way for us to be saved. That is to be given the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. That is Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, has come. And he lived the sinless life that we could never live for us. And then he also laid down his life on the cross and suffered for our sins in our place there, satisfying the wrath of God against our sins. And God then raised him from the dead. And now when we put our faith in what Christ has accomplished for us, when we cry out to him for the forgiveness that he has won for us, we will be saved from God's wrath. We will be forgiven of our sins. But we must repent from our sinful way of life. We must repent of believing that we could earn our own righteousness on our own. And we must acknowledge plainly with the words of the great hymnist, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the, the confession of every one who has come to understand the gospel. That you put your faith in Christ alone, the only Savior, the only light, the only way to peace with God. And because of the tender mercy of God, through the saving work of his son Jesus, our sins can be forgiven. We can be saved. Another much more modern hymn that we have been singing in our youth group recently goes like this. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, which is what God is, yet he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many but his mercy is more. So as we consider the millions of ways that we have sinned against God, knowing that God's tender mercy has provided for us a way for our sins to be forgiven, 
Friends, that gives us millions of reasons for why we should rejoice. Millions of reasons for why you should serve the Lord for the rest of your days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled by this great news of the tender mercy of God shown to us in the coming of John and the coming of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize who we really are. In and of ourselves, we are lost. We're in the dark. Can't help ourselves at all. Can't find our way to freedom, to life, to heaven. We need Christ. We need Jesus. So Lord, help us to see him as the glorious Savior that you sent and to begin to follow him in faith, turning away from our, our ways of doing things, our ways of getting out of trouble, our ways of thinking that we can handle ourselves on our own and help us to grasp hold, Father, of the truth of the gospel. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.